friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We are live. Welcome back. Welcome. We just like quickly... And Frankie's in the room. Yes, we Ugh. have Frankie with us today. Um, if you're new, Frankie is Katie's pitbull. Mutt dog. People. Me people. <laughs> but she sometimes hangs out with us because she just wants to, and that's fine. Um, but we quickly hit record. This is going to be a bit of a different opening. We quickly hit record because we were chatting, and we figured that maybe this would be worthwhile to record. Um, about why TMZ or, like, just why do we feel the Anyone. need to report things like BTK saying that Brian Koberger, the person who's been accused of the Idaho quadruple homicides, um, sharing some of his traits. Like, if you listen to the, the last episode through and through, you know we had a little, like, chat about the Idaho um, quadruple homicides and the connection that the accused might have to BTK. Um, and I was just clar- I was clarifying some of that. Barf TK. Yeah, I was just clarifying some of that information, and I came across this article from TMZ um, talking to to BTK, a, a serial killer, about his opinion of this person. And I just, why are we giving serial killers this kind of attention? The weird, weird world we live in. I am just shocked. And um, if you follow Sarah Turney on social media. She uh, is a huge advocate for uh, ethics in the true crime space. And, I, and this is one of the things that she's talking about. Like, why are we giving, why is there quotes from a serial killer in our, in, in, the, in the news as like information? And our, it's our pop culture That we're supposed to find, inter- that we're supposed to like find interesting. I'm just, I'm shocked yeah. and appalled by this. Um, but the information that I just wanted to clear up. Um, so the information I just wanted to clarify is that the uh, professor that Brian Koberger studied under at DeSales University was Catherine Ramsland. She is a forensic psychologist um, and she is obviously a university professor um, and she has communicated quite fake. I want to use the word famously with um, Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, and co-wrote the book Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer, with him. Co-wrote with him. Um, So this is a person that that Brian Koberger had a relationship with, and I just thought that that was interesting. Yeah, it's a super messed up dynamic, and like, I don't know. Anyways, um, my heart's go out to so. that, the, all of those families. It's a truly heartbreaking case. Again, if you are looking to get caught up, Going West podcast um, has great live coverage of cases that are kind of like happening right now. So they have a part one and a part two, and they always keep it really factual. Um, so you can catch up there, but it's a horrifying case. It's really just terrible. Yeah, I also remember finding out that the questionnaire that he made Mm -hmm. was actually to be posted on Reddit. Yes, it was. And I, well, or sorry, not that I realized that, but it it kind of dawned on me. It's like the vast amount of people that could 
answer those questions when originally I had thought it was for a class where maybe he was interviewing a small group of criminals. Um, I didn't realize it was like everyone behind a keyboard could answer yeah. at first. And that I think opened up just like a well of unfiltered answers. Well, because it was for like his thesis, right? So he was just yeah. trying to canvas a large group of people, I guess. I feel and... like thesis, it was like for his thesis sure. in like heavy air quotes. Yeah. Now, again, everyone's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Um, but anyway, moving on from him. It's it's really, 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 really horrible, the stuff that's come out in these arrest affidavits and, um, like, all the information that's coming out every single day. And it's just absolutely thrown in your face. It's, like, the Gabby Petito thing all over again. And then it's going to be, like, a teachable moment and then start over again, right? I just... Mm-hmm. Of course, we want this Again, This case is solved. It's frustrating yeah. as well, though, that, like, it's always a Caucasian female that gets a lot of the spotlight. Yeah. And it's like, how many other women of color are missing or have been murdered right now? Yeah, that's very true. Proportional Tough. representation. Um, we're a long ways away from seeing it, mm-hmm. so. But in any event, uh, this is tragic, and my heart goes out to all of these families. It's horrible, and yeah. But we are here today not to talk about the Idaho murders. We are actually here to cover the first case that I ever covered, which is so exciting. Um, And when I went back to do the research to kind of like revamp this episode, I gotta say, I was really impressed with my former self and the (laughs) level of research that went into this episode. I really did. Did you give yourself a little pat on the back? I did. I didn't have to do that much. It was mostly like reformatting. And I think that we are just like better at talking for lack of a better term nowadays yeah we just are so we try we try to be better um so i am really i don't want to say excited but um looking forward to doing this story a little bit more justice anticipation i do i do um but we're actually going to start out with a 911 call i'm going to play you some audio un momento por favor November 8th, 2010, this 911 call was made from inside a home at 238 Helen Avenue in Markham, Ontario by a 24-year-old female, Jennifer Pan. At the home lived Jennifer, her parents, Han and Bic Pan, and their son, Felix. Jennifer... Oh, yeah, Bic. Yes. Such a cute name. I know. 
Jennifer and her two parents were the only ones in the house at the time of the robbery as her brother Felix was away at university. Three gunmen are seen entering the home on neighbor's surveillance at 11.05 p.m. and are seen exiting the home 18 minutes later. Jennifer placed the call to 911 after the gunmen leave the second time. Her mother, Big Pan, was shot three times and died on scene. It was a shot to her head that was immediately fatal. Um, I noticed in our original episode that for some reason I had written that she was shot twice, but in all of the recent articles that I have been reading, just to kind of like brush up this episode, uh, they all say three. So I don't know if I just messed that up. but Probably just a typo, but... Probably, but in any event, um, her mother, Bic, was shot three times. Okay. Jennifer's father, Han Pan, was shot twice, once in the shoulder and once in the face. Uh, Han survived, amazingly, but he was put into an induced coma when he arrived at the hospital. He had, like, bullet fragments lodged well, in his so face. so much swelling in his face and brain area. Yeah, and it was expected. Like, they figured he would have some level of brain damage when he woke up just due to the trauma i think he was going to be like blind as well and like have all these like potential ailments yeah because he had like bullet fragments in his face and stuff and they just like weren't even sure what there was just no guarantee what he would come out with yeah if he was going to be able to communicate anything to him when them sorry when he woke up or like what he would remember of the event um jennifer Mm -hmm. was left unharmed so she is the one, of course, that makes the 911 call. Yes. She was tied up. Yes. Jennifer Pan was born on June 17, 1986, in Markham, Ontario, to her father, Han Pan, and her mother, Bic Pan. She has a younger brother, Felix, as we mentioned, who was born in 1989. Jennifer started playing piano at the age of four, and as a child in the younger grade she was seemingly smart academically han and big pan were both vietnamese immigrants uh han immigrated to canada in 1979 as a political refugee Uh, the two met in canada so they immigrated separately met here they were quite strict um it was said they had quite high expectations for their children a lot of people Mm -hmm. referred to their parenting style as like tiger parenting to almost an extreme um they they expected their kids to be quite high performing academically and in their extracurriculars especially Mm -hmm. han it seemed very very high expectations yeah it seemed like han was kind of more strict with it and Bic agreed, if you will. It's the vibe I get. Yeah, he's it's the patriarch of the family. Yeah. Tiger parenting, by definition, uh, is considered a strict or demanding form of parenting. Tiger parents push and pressure their children to attain high levels of academic achievement um, or success in extracurricular activities using authoritarian parenting methods. Uh, children of tiger parents often end up measuring their own worth based on their successes in these academic and extracurriculars, um, which we know can cause some major mental health problems later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, the anxiety, I can only imagine, is all the time. Yeah. Jennifer was originally able to kind of cater to these expectations. Like she was their golden child because she was a high level competitive figure skater. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Jennifer herself described her skating as, like, quote, middle of the pack, which is pretty normal for that age. Like, everyone's middle of the pack unless you're doing extremely, extremely well. Like, you yeah. know, landing national but and international competitions. not in that pack anymore. Yeah, I would just say that, like, the average competitive figure skater is in the middle of the pack. Uh, but she still devoted all of her time to figure skating and training, and she was able to, like, bring home medals and, you know, win competitions and kind of continue on with that. It took the pressure yeah, she was, off she was good. her um, because her parents were quite happy with how she was performing. Her performance, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, though, Jennifer suffered a knee injury at the age of 14, uh, and because of this, she was no longer able to skate competitively. So this... Did she get Tanya Harding? <laughs> I don't think so, no. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Horrible story. I would love to cover mm-hmm. that on this podcast one day, just as like a different type of episode. I think that would be okay. really interesting. But anyways, this this made it so Jennifer now had to perform extremely well in other areas of her life, including her academics, but... Jennifer was not nearly as gifted in academics as she got older as she was at figure skating. Um, Yeah, her meal ticket just disappeared. A hundred percent. And so my guess is she had kind of been coasting along at school because her parents were so happy with what she was doing at skating. They just like, not that they didn't care, but it wasn't their sole focus. So now that she wasn't able to skate, her parents were looking directly at school and her music. Um, but in high school, Jennifer wasn't able to maintain the A's that her parents were looking for. Um, you know, yeah. she got B's and stuff, but it just wasn't good enough. So she was pressured very hard. Yeah, I mean, what to her is unacceptable to us would be a great report card. Yes. So because of this, um, she started to fake her test results. So it got to the point that she was actually averaging like a CC minus in high school. Uh, But now that her parents were really needing to see her succeed academically, she was just doctoring her report cards to make it look like she was getting A's. This actually led to her creating a fake high school diploma. So she didn't graduate high school, but she created a a diploma and showed them that she did. Uh, And then she actually provided them a fake university acceptance letter showing that she had been accepted into pharmacology at the University of Toronto. I remember she kept saying she was in a pharmacology program. Yeah. And so she kept these lies up for a while and we're going to kind of talk about that but it's crazy to me or wild yeah, to me that she could keep while, I would say. this double life up for so long I mean it would be stressful uh, yes. Ryerson University was said to have actually accepted Jennifer but they rescinded her early entrance when she, fail, uh, she failed her grade 12 calculus class so she, she was close <laughs> Aw, yeah. that kind of sucks that it was just pending on that one grade and she didn't get it. That sucks. Yeah, and I imagine, like, having to stop skating probably provided a level of depression for her as well that made mm-hmm. it so she probably had an even harder time focusing on her studies and, like, caring about school. So I get it. It's hard. I agree. Yeah. 
She actually also began to lie about pretty much her whole life, like not only to her family, but some of her friends as well. She posed as a university student who was working and volunteering at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital. Um, she bought... Don't bring sick kids into it, guys. We've talked about that. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that's the exact line that Katie said when we originally recorded this episode Probably, was just leave the sick, sick kids, kids into it. out of it. Leave old people, kids, and animals out of it, people. 100%. Especially the sick ones of all three of those categories. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer bought, she bought, like, secondhand textbooks. She watched, like, pharmacology-related videos on YouTube to create, like, notebooks full of related notes to really keep up the ruse that she was going to university and, like, living this life. Who has the time? You might as well go to university. <laughs> honestly god you might as well have just gone to university or like done your upgrading classes and figured it out but i I mean like at this point like just do whatever schoolwork is needed you're spending so much time editing these documents you might as well just be doing the schoolwork yeah while she's quote attending university though jennifer asks her parents if she can stay with a friend throughout the week to be closer to the school Mm -hmm. so they said yes Um, And it turns out that Jennifer was actually living with her boyfriend that she had been dating for six years secretly, Daniel Wong. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel and... such a long time. Jennifer... Right? It's a long time. Especially at that age to be able to hide it. Well, and I think that creating these fake tests and... Making it look like she was going to university. Hold on. Yeah, she's going to, like, oh, I'm going to go study. I'm going to be at the library. One, I have to work. She's keeping her parents happy, right? I'm assuming that they're they're not asking too many questions or posing too many concerns yeah. if she's checking all these boxes that they're wanting her to check. Yeah. And so keeping up this fake life is just making it easier for her to do what she actually wants to do, which is just date her boyfriend. Yeah, I guess so. One plan kind of solves the other. Yep. Daniel and Jennifer had started dating during high school. Um, Her parents had no clue. Jennifer spent most of her time while she was supposed to be at school and work at the hospital in coffee shops. She was teaching piano part-time, and she worked in a restaurant, the same restaurant that Daniel was working at, um, while her, like I said, her family and even some of her friends thought that she was at university and volunteering and doing all these other things. Um, she managed to keep up this image for two full years. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I remember the first time being like, what the hell? Two years? That's a long time. I just, who has the energy? To be, like, carrying around a backpack with, like, a Toronto Sick Kids Hospital name tag on it or something. Do you know what I mean? It's just, like... The amount of shit you also have to be, like, educating yourself on just to keep up with what people are like, oh, what are you learning? How about this? Like, there's got to be other people she knows in her life that are, like, nurses or caregivers who are going to ask more specific questions and she's going to be like oh yeah no I haven't learned that yet like what are you going to say these kind of stories always blow my mind because I'm a bad liar like I'm bad I will like snicker and smile and I just don't have a poker face I wish that I did but I don't and so yeah these are always like damn dude damn 
Uh, Jennifer and Daniel met They were when they were in 11th grade, even though having a boyfriend had been forbidden for Jennifer. Um, but like I said, her parents did eventually find out about Daniel because her mom caught them kissing goodbye when she came to pick her up from the mall one day. Scandalous. Jennifer said that one of the reasons her parents didn't like Daniel was because he was mixed race Chinese and Filipino. And when they found out about him, they told her to stop seeing him. Uh, obviously she didn't do this. They continued to date despite her parents' disapproval. And eventually her parents actually... Is there, like, some beef between Vietnamese people and, like, Chinese? I'm not and... sure. Maybe her parents <laughs> wanted her to date somebody Vietnamese specifically. I don't... I'm not Maybe. sure of, like, the cultural or religious factors there. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. she... They just didn't like the fact that he was mixed race. So... I don't know. Okay. Jennifer did try to bring Daniel home one day because her parents, like, eventually said, well, if you're going to do this anyways, like, we want to meet him. So she brings him home and said automatically her parents didn't like him, quote, for some reason and basically said, like, you need to stop doing this. Uh, So at this point, Jennifer says she did stop seeing Daniel for a while, but that this caused her to feel empty she fell into depression and so she started seeing him again Mm -hmm. she then said that daniel was the person that filled an empty void for her and when they weren't together she felt like a part of herself was missing Um, girlfriend needs to get some independence and some self-confidence yeah because didn't she say that he was like the one person that she could just not worry around kind of thing and just be like It seems like at this point she's just very emotionally codependent on him. Like, yes, she felt like he was one of the only person that she could just be herself and not pretend to be this high-performing person that her... She also didn't really put in any time to meet anyone else to be herself. Sure, but I also think that at this point she is very codependent on him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So she starts seeing him again, um, but it it became very difficult to hide because her parents, even at this point, I mean, she's like in her early 20s at this point, but they were monitoring her activity so closely. Um, So they would meet when Jennifer was pretending to be working at a university. um, And one article I read actually said that usually they had sex in Daniel's car due to the lack of time and an appropriate venue. Okay. Appropriate thinking. Okay, Mul- I'm, yeah, at that age. I mean, yeah, no judgment whatsoever. You don't have your own place. No judgment. I just thought it was like, what's the point of including that in a news article? Yeah, to like piss her parents off more. I don't know. Multiple sources called Daniel a marijuana drug dealer. And they also said he worked at the same restaurant that Jennifer had started working at, which I believe was yes. a Boston pizza, but I also had conflicting info that it could have been an Eastside Mario's. So in the same realm. I think they're kind I of I was going to say they're, they're similar. <laughs> Maybe they're owned by the same person. Nobody knows. All the restaurants are nowadays, so. And I'm sure somebody knows. Yeah. Uh, so for those two years, Jennifer lied to her parents and instead of staying like at her friend's house during the week, like she said she was going to, she stayed at Daniel's during the week. Um, yeah. She said that Daniel's parents loved her. So like you said, I think that she was able to just kind of like, there was no judgment. There was Relax. no pressures, no expectations there. She could just 
sit around and be her in all her glory. Yeah. Jennifer's parents did eventually find out about this, however. Um, so they found out because they called the friend who she had told them she had been staying with during the week. And I don't know why they called her in the middle of the night, but maybe they were looking for her or maybe they caught on and so they were I think they were probably, probably onto, onto her, her and, and, like, and testing her. Let's just call it a weird time it, that she should be there. Yeah, and so this friend was like really groggy because it was the middle of the night and she was sleeping and forgot what day it was. And she said, isn't she home? But of course, Jennifer wasn't at home. She was supposed to be at this person's house. So they figured it out. Her ruse was up. Another. I wonder how mad she was at that friend. Yeah, I mean, can you really be? You're the one lying and asking your friends to lie for you. True. Another source said that uh, her parents had become suspicious of her because they started to realize that, like, she didn't actually have a hospital ID or a uniform, and that's something that she would need if she was volunteering at the Sick Kids Hospital. So I'm sure a lot of stuff just started to not add up because, like we said, it would be really hard to keep up a whole fake life for two years under the same roof as, as people. Like, not only would it be hard, but if you lived under the same roof as two people who are very closely watching what you were doing. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, still living at home, I can't believe she got away with this. Because, yes, I could see, for example, when I lived, like, an hour away from my family, I could totally have faked a bunch of my life and probably played it off believable. But under the same roof with the people who can read you the best in the world. I was going to say, good luck to me trying to, like, legitimately lie Sandy. to my mom. Yeah. I can't. No. I probably tell my mom way more than I should, just simply because I can't lie to her. You do. Oh, well. She loves it. I know. So, her parents find out they're friggin' pissed. Uh, her dad is the most mad and wants to like immediately throw her out of the house and lock the door basically. But her mother, Bic, I would pleads with him to allow her to stay. So they decide she can stay, but l- under one condition. She's basically given an ultimatum by her parents. You can choose Daniel mm-hmm. and live there and move out and never come back. Or you can live at home under our roof under absolutely strict conditions like you will go to school we will accompany you to your classes kind of thing i will walk you to the fence yeah at the beginning of the day and i will pick you up at the same spot at the at the bell i know it's not yeah high school no no 100 percent though it was like oh it would be high school for her actually well yeah she'd have to do continuing education which is fine you can do that at the universities and stuff like upgrading totally uh, so Jennifer decides to choose option one she's gonna stay home with her parents <laughs> I think I reversed those when I just said that yeah you did okay that's why she's I was gonna like, choose wait. the option of staying at home door number two okay so she stayed home she's forbidden to contact Daniel and she's only allowed to leave the house to teach piano lessons or to go to school This was happening in 2008, so Jennifer would have been 22 years old at the time. So two years before the robbery of the home. Okay. It's then... Wow, two years before. I didn't... I forgot the time window was that big. Yeah, so two years before that that 911 call that I played um, is when 
her parents kind of like finally found out about everything and gave her this ultimatum and she chose to stay home and cut off all contact with Daniel and and close that chapter of her life for good. Or did she? It's then on November 8th, 2010, that the Pan home is robbed at gunpoint. Um, And as mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Jennifer's mother, Bick, died on scene while her father, Han, miraculously survived his wounds. Mm-hmm. After the robbery, because um, Jennifer calls 911, she's brought into the Markham Police Department for questioning uh, immediately after. During her first interview, Jennifer is considered a witness, giving a voluntary statement under oath. The officers read her her witness rights. Um, she recounted her day that day. She said from 9 to 9.30 a.m., her mom woke her up and said that she was going to visit her grandfather. Then she said she practiced piano and studied piano theory. She talked on the phone with some of her friends and then had dinner with her parents. Uh, Then she says her mother left for line dancing, which I think is adorable, at 8 p.m. and returned home at 9.30 p.m. Jennifer says that she went downstairs to say goodnight to her mother and went to bed. At this point, she says she's alone in her room. She had the TV on and she was on the phone with a friend. At 11 p.m., Jennifer said three men carrying guns entered the home and first confronted her mother, Bick. She said she suddenly heard her mother call loudly for her father to come downstairs. She says she turned the TV down and she could hear voices that she normally couldn't hear. Jennifer then says a man appeared and he had a rope and tied her up, saying, I have a gun behind your back, do what I say, and if you do what I say, nobody will get hurt. Then he demands, where is your money? Show me where your money is. The three men begin to demand Big Pan give them her purse. Um, and Jennifer said in this interview that the man took $1,100 from her parents' master bedroom and tied her to a banister. After this, uh, Jennifer said she could hear her mother yelling out for her. And eventually she heard two pops, her mother scream, and then another two pops. Jennifer said it was at this point that the three men leave and she called 911. Um, The officers Uh sort of asked her questions like, why did they shoot your parents but not you? Um, And Jennifer responded, all they said was that I cooperated. So you can kind of tell, you can watch this interrogation or this first interview, I guess, Mm -hmm. on YouTube. And you can sort of tell that the officer is trying to probe with clarifying questions because it for sure they're very open-ended um but that he's not pushing too hard because she is still a witness at this point so after this after one if she wasn't part of it that could be so traumatizing like you kind of have to have a bit to go on before you just accuse the family right out the gate yeah so he's asking like like katie said very open-ended very much like hmm kind of questions um tell me about this yeah but he what do you think he's not pushing too hard and then after she says kind of like oh they just said that because i cooperated i was fine um she's allowed to go home so that's on the the 10th the day of the incident okay the morning of november 11th 2010 at 9 a.m the police bring jennifer in for a second interview Um, Again, they are cautious about how they treat any victim in this type of a scenario. Um, 
So to me, bringing her in the next morning is an immediate indication that they feel something was off um, because normally they would get everything that they need in that initial interview to mitigate the level of revictimization. Right. No, I totally agree. I know what you mean. And it's also always best to get witness recounts when the person's memory is fresh. Yep. Because after that, they do waver in consistency mm-hmm. and reliability yes. significantly. Yeah. Usually, like, the information is somewhat the same, though, if it's a witness. Um, it's just, like, those really intricate details that are, like, pertinent to an investigation or could be that one thing that opens the case wide up that end up getting missed the longer it's been since then, right? Yeah. So they bring her in for the second interview. Um, she sits down with the officers and immediately out the gate says that she's really nervous. Uh, the detective asks her, like, why are you so nervous? And she says, I don't want to say the wrong things. She then starts to hmm. explain before they even ask Let's her. the truth, lady. Yeah, before they're even asking her any questions, she, she starts to explain to them why her story might not match her original statement from the night before. Um, And so they're doing their best to kind of be like, it's okay, just like, tell us what you know, we just want to get the information from you, like, if you've done nothing wrong, it's going to be totally fine, like, it's cool. So she recounts the entire story again, Uh, this time she says she heard footsteps coming up the stairs that she didn't recognize, she opened her bedroom door to investigate, but this time she says that she sees a man standing in her brother's bedroom, who then takes her downstairs... And then she says they sat her on the floor and tied her hands. Um, In the interrogation video for this, you can literally see her face when she realizes that she forgot to mention that she was tied up upstairs. Like, you can see the oh shit moment on her face. But the detective doesn't challenge it at all in this moment. He just lets her tell her story. They're cool as cucumbers. I was going to say, this is is really, really well done, this interrogation. Mm -hmm. Good Food is Canada's number one meal kit service that delivers right to your door. Good Food makes cooking fun, easy, and affordable. They offer different meal plans to fit your needs like vegetarian, clean 15, easy prep, and the most popular basket, the classic basket. Every recipe is packed with fresh produce that comes directly from farmers and with Good Food, you can skip the trip to the grocery store and have everything you need to make your curated meals delivered straight to your door. Sign up for Good Food today using the code free podcast by proxy to get your first classic box for free. That's free podcast by proxy when creating your Good Food account to get a classic box on us. Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. In 1952, there was a record high of UFOs reported. 1,500 sightings. There has been evidence of human sacrifice, devil worship, and it is haunted by more spirits than can be counted. A family of two adults and two kids reportedly saw a giant flying thing with glowing red eyes. And meanwhile, the family's nanny that helped Veronica to care for her and Lucian's children was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of their family home. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and Uncorked. Uh, She messes up a number of times during this interview. Um, 
with like contradictions from her original statement the day before. At one point, the detective asks her how much money the intruders took, and she said she didn't see them take any money, but that she thinks around a few hundred dollars. So the detective then questions her on this, saying, like, you were solid yesterday that it was $1,100. So how did you get to that number if you feel like it's only a couple hundred dollars today and you didn't physically see them take any money? You didn't see yeah. it? so like, But yet you showed him where it was? So this is when she goes pretty silent and hangs her head and she says, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Oh, God. Uh, the officers then ask her and make her do like a physical reenactment of how she was able to call 911 with her cell phone while she's subsequently oh, yeah. tied up to the railing with her arms behind her back um before she gets up to attempt to do this she takes a massive swig of her coffee and i definitely chuckled just like it looked like somebody like stress drinking alcohol yeah yeah, it's like when someone takes a shot before they, like, get up to go ask someone out at the 100%, bar or 100%. That's the image that I had in my brain. Like a shot and then, okay, here we go. Yeah. The demo that she does for this, though, like, actually makes sense. Uh, so she's able to kind of, like, show how she can, you know, do that, pull her little phone to the side and call 911. Um, pull her little phone. The next major contradiction that she makes from her original statement, though, is she says that the door closed uh, and she heard her father moaning and that's when she calls 911. And we know that this is untrue. We've talked about this. Yeah, yeah. we know this is this is untrue because if you replay, I can replay it again if you want, um, the 911 call, you can like... But you can hear. You can physically hear like, her father start to make noises, and you can tell that she is realizing yes. he is conscious for the first time. Like, oh, he's still here. He's calling out for me. He's aware of what's yeah, happening. Yeah, because she yells out something in Vietnamese and, and then says, alive. I'm calling 911. I'm calling 911. So, like, this is the first, like, realization that she's having that her father is actually alive. Yeah, and she's giving him peace of mind that... She's confirming she hears him. She's safe. Yeah. So this this lie specifically, or sorry, I guess not lie, this contradiction specifically raises red flags for the officers. Yeah. Yeah. So two hours into this second interview, the detective starts to ask Jennifer about her family life, and pretty instantly she opens up about her relationship with her parents, um, telling them all about their unattainable expectations. She admits to all the lies that she made up in attempt to fulfill them, including faking test results, her whole university degree. She told them about figure skating and how devastated she was when she wasn't able to skate anymore and, like, literally the whole thing. Three and a half hours into the interview, the officer starts to, like, question Jennifer a little bit again. Like, he has built rapport with her, asking her about her family life and really giving her a place to, like, she literally used it as a therapy session um, to, like, yeah. spill her guts and, and talk. And he, and he was great at just, like, being receptive to that and allowing her to talk. Um, but he does eventually kind of bring it back and ask again, like, why would they leave you alone? 
why didn't these people like yeah, why, why specifically you were you spared because it's odd that in something a situation like this somebody would leave an eyewitness alive unharmed completely and someone that you like supposedly walked around the house with heard your voice your they saw your gait they you know they they know too, way too much yeah and so the officer kind of makes a little comment like well who's to say you aren't lying and she says oh my god no yeah like there's every reason for her to lie she's still alive and like she should just be saying i don't know yeah at this point though uh her father han is still in in a coma and Again, they weren't sure if, like, he would have brain damage so significant that he wouldn't be able to recount anything as a witness. And so they're trying to... Yeah, which is fair. Yeah, they're trying to really appeal to Jennifer by saying, like, you are our only link to figure out who harmed your parents um, until her dad can potentially be spoken to. So -hmm. Jennifer is released from this second interview. She goes home. Han wakes up. He remembers everything. Like everything. 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 I know. I remember being just like shocked the first time. So he gives a secret statement on November 16th, 2010 um, to the police. Jennifer has no idea that he is even awake. And the biggest discrepancy between his story and Jennifer's story was that Jennifer actually wasn't tied up at all. She was walking around freely and talking to all three intruders and as like laughing as if them. they were friends. She was just having a gab. It's like she was giving them a tour of the house. Yeah. It feels yeah. like the way he explains it, like just walking around going like Oh, and that's my brother's room and that's my room and like, like or just came down the stairs and was like, Oh hey guys. How's it going? Yeah. What up? Yeah. So, long story short, when Jennifer's parents gave her an ultimatum and she said that she chose option one, which was to stay at their house and live under their rules, um, she actually chose her own personal option, number three, uh, with her boyfriend, Daniel. So she had secretly continued to try and date Daniel behind her parents' back. And Daniel honestly had just kind of grown tired of dealing with the whole thing. He was just kind of over it. Well, it takes the fun out of dating. Yeah, I mean. At a certain point. Yeah, he like, just was like, he's this young. isn't worth it, man. If you don't want to leave there to make this work with me at 24 years old, he basically said like two years into the ultimatum in 2010, he just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, all this stuff with your... It sounds exhausting. Yeah, all this stuff with your parents isn't worth it. So him and Jennifer break up and he starts dating somebody new. Um, there are text messages that are available to read between, between the two of them um, where Daniel texts Jennifer that he misses her and how he's unhappy with his new girlfriend and he misses Jennifer. And so this causes Jen to grow such a mind fuck. Yeah. Just like grow really desperate because she wants to be with Daniel. Um, and at one point she actually becomes so desperate for his attention that she lies to him and says that she was gang raped. 
to try and get him to feel bad for her and come back to her. So there's just a lot of, like, desperation going on here. Um, It's it's disgusting what she's saying happened. She just, like, really wants both, you know? She doesn't want to... It sounds like she doesn't want to, like, disappoint her parents. But she doesn't want to lose Daniel. She doesn't want to lose Daniel. I just... Yeah. I don't know. So after this... uh, like, after he starts dating somebody and then they're like, oh, I miss you, um, the two of them decide to come up with a plan. Oh, I miss you. <laughs> so their plan was that they were going to hire somebody to kill Jennifer's parents and then live off of the money that she would inherit from their estate. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. The two of them calculated that she would probably make $500,000 off of her half of the inheritance inheritance because remember she would have to split half with her brother Felix who was away at school $10,000 would pay the fee for the hitman um, that they would hire so $5,000 per hit and then the rest they would just like fly off into the sunset and live happily ever after that was the plan do you think they called and like got quotes to be able to get that price like so I called around and a hitman is averaging about five thousand a head um actually that was a 50 percent off discount from homeboy if you remember from the first time we covered this case <laughs> I do remember homeboy yeah. now so homeboy is Daniel Wong's love that friend. nickname for him um I believe homeboy is Eric Cardi but let me there's three of them. So the men who were said to have carried out this deed were David Milvigan, Milviganam, Lenford Crawford, and Eric Cardi. Um, and these were three men that were known to Daniel Wong. I want to confirm. He probably sold them that marijuana plant. That marijuana smoke. Marijuana plant. Can you hear Frankie snoring? No. Okay, so uh, Homeboy, who was the uh, the hitman that they hired, was actually the name for Lenford Crawford. Okay. So after the interview with Han Pan um, and doing some of their own investigation, I'm assuming they probably pulled some cell phone data and things like that, Jennifer is brought in by the police for her third and final interview on November 22nd, 2010, a week and a half after the alleged robbery incident occurred. Again, three interviews in a week and a half. (laughs) Yeah. This time, uh, she's interviewed by Detective William Gates, LOL Bill Gates, who said that she could call him Bill. (laughs) In this interview... uh, she is immediately... Call me Bill. Yeah, she's immediately read her right to silence instead of her rights as a victim. Um, and if she had known a little bit more about the justice system at this point, she would have realized in this moment that she was being interrogated as a suspect for the first time. She doesn't realize at all, though. I'm shocked that this is the first time she's been like, oh... No, she doesn't realize at all that this change has occurred. Like, they read her rights, her right to silence, and she's just like... Okay, cool. Let's get on with this. In this interview, she opens up quite a bit about Daniel and her parents not liking him. So this is kind of when they they question her more about that relationship. Um, They talk more about the double life that she upheld for, you know, the last two years. Um, And then they finally come to the ultimatum that she was given. 
Jennifer tells the detective that at one point she was so depressed from feeling like such a failure that she cut herself and that she wanted to kill herself. During this interview, uh, they confront Jennifer about a second phone that she had been given by Daniel. Uh, They had all been asked for their cell phones and Jennifer turned over her like quote unquote main phone that her parents knew about. That was her like regular phone. Uh, And Daniel had actually told the police that Jennifer had a second phone, which was considered her quote unquote secret phone that he had given her so that the two of them could communicate. So this is like a... It's where we send all our dirty text messages. Yeah, it's like a burner-style phone, I guess you could say, that he's given her so that they can talk without her parents knowing. So he spills the beans that she has this second phone. So weird. And so the cops confront her about this and say, we would like your burner phone, please. This phone's record showed that Daniel and Jennifer had sent over a hundred text messages about this plan and how it would be carried out in the six hours leading up to this home invasion. At around the two and a half hour mark in this third interview, the detective tells Jennifer that basically he finally is like, hey man, I know that you're not being truthful. I'm, we're gonna we're Duh. gonna stop pretending like what you're telling me is the truth, and I'm just gonna tell you that I think that what you're telling me is bullshit. I think that is, you know what? Yeah, yeah. let's just move forward. Yeah. So he's like really pressing Jennifer to tell the truth. Uh, at one point, he actually lies about what type of technology the police can use to like disprove her lies. Um, This lie is legal in Canada during an interrogation, and the statements are still admissible in court. Yeah, even if a statement is given under false pretenses, the the police are allowed to use a certain level of um, fibs to get information out of you, and those statements that you make are still admissible in court. They are not, though, allowed... I have mixed feelings about this in general. Yeah, they're not allowed to lie to you, though, about, like, because she asked them at one point, well, like, what would happen to me? They can't lie about that. No. Not about her outcome, right? No, not about her outcome. Like, if she asks, if I tell you this, am I going to go to jail? They can't say no. Yeah, because that would be like making a deal without making a deal in a way. Yeah. So she does ask the question, quote, what happens to me, like, many times, which, like I said, is the one thing they can't lie about. And she finally said, I wanted it to stop. At three hours and 22 minutes into this interrogation, Jennifer now changes her story. Here she says, quote, they were supposed to kill me. And says that these men were hired to kill her because she had tried to kill herself and was not able to finish the job. But that her family was supposed to live. Which is just laughable. Um, yeah. like Pathetic. They're not going to make that mistake. Yeah. Oh shit, we accidentally killed two of them? Oh darn. Yeah, now, even though we know this information is a bold-faced lie... Uh, Her giving this information up confirms that she knew that a robbery was going to take place prior to it happening, and that was enough to arrest her. So they had enough. Of course. She is seen on tape, like, 
I have in my script fake crying, but maybe she was real crying because she knew she was going to jail. Who knows? But saying she just wanted to free everyone from herself um, and that she had tried suicide but failed. And the detective, in more professional language, tells her that is the stupidest shit he's ever heard. Um, It is the stupidest shit I've ever heard. Again, they're not going to try to come into the house to complete... A murder of you and accidentally kill both your parents instead and be like, oops. It's not. No, it's just, that's not going to happen. It's not believable to anybody that somebody who couldn't go through with their own suicide would hire somebody else to stage a robbery and do it for them. Like, I'm not going to go into suicide too much. Um... But I think that we all can agree that that's just not reasonable. No, and I I think it's scientifically proven that people move further away from their families to commit suicide. You wouldn't hire someone to come into your home and kill you. Yeah, just none of it makes sense, basically. None of it makes sense. I'm obviously not saying that, like... Thing, like a situation is impossible anything realistically is possible no. but this doesn't make any sense and it's unreasonable no I mean again she's just throwing shit to see what sticks totally so the detective doesn't get any further with Jennifer at this time and at four hours and 25 minutes into this interview he essentially just explains to her that she is under arrest for the first degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder um, of her parents. The three hired hitmen as well um, are, are, as well as Daniel Wong, sorry, are arrested and charged. I, was say, I thought Daniel was too. Yeah, they're all four are arrested and charged with the same crimes. The detective asks Jennifer if she has or knows a lawyer. She says no. Um, they ask if she wants to speak to duty counsel, and she says she just wants to talk to someone who can help her. Uh, the detective literally forces duty counsel on her because she just continuously over and over says she doesn't know what to do who yeah i mean you got yourself in this situation girl should have thought this through i would just you know plan a little bit further if you're gonna plan something like this just plan like one extra step beyond riding off into the sunset like you don't you don't know anything you don't even know like what's gonna happen if you get arrested i just you know i just i know you haven't maybe thought, like, okay, if people are murdered, what's the general outcome if for people to, who get caught? I mean, yeah, I guess I understand why that level of thought wasn't put in here, and it seems like not a lot of level of thought was put in here, but it's just shocking to me that you it's wouldn't even, like, know what duty counsel is after planning something like this. Anyways. Oh, yeah, no, I was... Anyways. I was correct, by the way. There's only three of them. I don't know why I thought there was four. Oh, no, there is four. Fuck. Cut that out. <laughs> I'm stupid. I think we're just both exhausted. Literally exhausted. I'm going to go try and <laughs> f- hurl myself in the air after this. Oh, nice. The trial against Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, David Milveganam. That's hard to say. And Lenford Crawford began on March 14th, 2014. Um, Everyone was tried together except for Eric Carty, who was tried separately uh, due to his counsel becoming sick 
right when the trial started. So they had to call a, a okay. mistrial for him and then said he would be tried alone at a later date. Um, he was also being held f- uh, in jail separately for an incarceration on a separate murder charge from 2009, the year prior. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All of the defendants... I clearly forgot a lot of these details. Yeah, so he was, like, already at the time after this happened, he had been caught for uh, a different murder from 2009, and he was being held, so he was in jail anyways. Well, that's where he should be. Yeah. The jury uh, was given... uh, Sorry. All defendants pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The jury was given the option to convict with the lesser op- uh, the lesser sentence of second degree murder for all defendants except Jennifer. So like for the the guys, so even though they physically did the act, she wasn't eligible for this. She was considered like the main person who was planning this, which is like planned and deliberate oh, is like the main umbrella of first degree murder right so second degree murder is like you meant to kill them but there wasn't forethought or you didn't do the planning so they were able to potentially 